when we emphasize the need to get every decision right, we have set ourselves up for failure because you're not going to get everything right. You're going to you're going to mess up. Even things you think about carefully, sometimes you will make the wrong choice. It's time to enter the chat with Emily Oster. But first, can we just acknowledge that it's that time of year again when we get to celebrate the incredible mothers in our lives? Mother's Day is right around the corner, and I promise you the gift your mother wants is a chapbook. And they're super easy to make, too. Just download the Chapbooks app or go to chapbooks.com, check out our brand new designer covers from Rifle Paper Company, and get started. And be sure to tag me if you share any pictures of your book on Instagram. I'm Vanessa Quigley. I would love to see them. Okay, on to Emily. Hello, hello. It is time to enter the chat today with Emily Oster. Welcome to the Mom Force, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you are the perfect person to chat with today. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. She holds a PhD in economics from Harvard and is the mother of two. Yes, that sounds right. How old are they right now? They are seven and 11, almost eight and almost 12, I think is what they would tell you. Okay. Now, do you, would you consider this the sweet spot? I do like this. You know, I feel like every age I have liked better. So far, I've been only on the, on the upswing with the kids, but it is awfully nice to be able to have like sort of adultish conversations and everyone can use the bathroom on their own. So that's like huge. an enormous win. <laughs> that's huge. Well, I have been reading your books in preparation for this little chat. And I have to say, I'm a long way from having babies of my own again. I have seven. I had seven in 15 years and now my youngest is 15. So I have been through the phases and and I'm with you. I feel like every phase is my my new favorite. Although I would love for you to write a book about the young adult phase because <laughs> this one with my young adult kids is kind of kicking my butt. I feel like it gets, even though I like it better over time, it has gotten in some ways harder. You know, I think when I had little kids, I thought like, oh, this is so hard. I'm so tired. Of course, you were, I was very tired. Now I'm not quite as tired, but some of the problems that come up, I'm like, oh, I am not ready for this. Like, this feels like I could really mess it up. Whereas with little kids, it was sort of like, well, we get another chance tomorrow night. Maybe they'll sleep then. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting to watch kind of the evolution through your books too. It kind of changes when the the choices are feel like, oh, well, we could just do the, something different tomorrow versus this could totally change the trajectory of this child's life. But I have to say, when I first got pregnant, I the book I bought was What to Expect When You're Expecting. That was Me basically too. the only book that I even thought was available. And that was my Bible for that first pregnancy. And then every other I did totally different (laughs) and kind of just was like going off of my gut. And I cannot tell you how much I wish I had expecting better because I love your book because it doesn't say exactly what to do, but it helps you think about all the myriad of choices and how to make the best one for yourself. So I'm wondering what made you want to write a book in the first place and totally re-examine all the conventional wisdom around pregnancy and parenting? So, I mean, the short answer is I also got what you expect when you're expecting. (laughs) So, you know, I got pregnant now, I guess, 12 and a half years ago, 12 years and nine months ago. And I got what you expect when you're expecting. And I started going to my doctor. And, you know, at the time I was working as an economist, which I'm still doing. And a lot of my research is about data and evidence. And a lot of it's in the area of health. 
when I got pregnant, I started like using those tools to do a lot of my own research about pregnancy, in part because I felt like the messages that I was getting were not nuanced enough. So there was a, a list of things not to do, you know, don't have deli meats, don't smoke marijuana, don't smoke cigarettes, don't drink. Also, you know, don't have a hot dog. Don't, there was like, don't yeah. have tuna fish. And what, what was, I think, very hard about those was, well, I don't know, are these all equally important? Is having a piece of, of you know, deli turkey as bad as smoking? Yeah. And how can I understand all of these risks in their context? And so I started doing all of this work in the service of my own pregnancy and then ultimately sort of put it together in this book, which is about using tools from data and decision making to try to let people really take control and be empowered in their own pregnancies to, to think about you know, the choices that they want to make. Yeah. I So I used What to Expect for Respecting as kind of my Bible for my first pregnancy. But right after that baby was born, we moved to France and we lived there for the first three months of his life. And so everything about those couple, those early, you know, newborn phase, I was doing what they did in France. And came home to then find out, oh, no, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, and you let him eat solid foods and you can't, you're, you're eating cheese. You're not, so, you know, like all of a sudden I was so confused because what seemed totally normal. And I was just following my friends there in France and what the pediatrician there was saying was so different from what I was hearing when I got back to the States too. And so that was just another example of like, who's right? Who do you, who do you trust? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's very easy to say like, well, you know, I'm just going to follow the the rules that I'm given. But yeah. then when you have an experience where you're like, well, actually, the rules change. <laughs> the rules change. They yeah. change and they're different in different places. And and then then you're sort of lost. And I think this is the value of having something to come back to. And that's for me, that's really where the data idea comes in. Like this is your know, real concrete something you can use to make decisions about rather than, you know, just what somebody said in yeah. whatever context they're in. Yeah. We talk about data a lot in our business. So we have a software company that makes it easy for families to print their photos. And, you know, when we first started the business, we were running all on intuition. And, you know, we really had the right intuition on some of the things that which helped business grow. But then you you can't just solely run on intuition because then you find yourself, you know, down the wrong path. But we found that there was this balance between data and intuition. Like if you are only just going to make decisions around the data, it slowed down the process. And we, we, we started to see that we were missing the spark. And so finding that balance between data and intuition, like how do you, how do you cancel families? In your book, you do such a great job of laying out the data around some of the, you know, tougher choices that we have to make as parents. But where does intuition play in all of that? I think intuition or preferences, you know, I'm an economist, we talk about preferences. Okay. I think really what we mean is is intuition. I think you know, that plays a, a huge role. And, and what I try to, to sort of counsel people, and I talk a lot about this in the family firm when I sort of try to dive into more of these like very explicit decision-making tools, is the idea that both of these pieces, you know, the data and your preferences should come together in, in the decision. And it's very rare that data will make a decision for you. So it's very rare. There's very few things in life, in parenting, where there'll be a piece of data and it will be like, this tells you that there is a right choice. Much more common to say, you know, the data pushes in this direction or here are the benefits, here are the costs. And then ultimately, the only way to actually make a decision is to combine it with your intuition, your preferences, what you feel is right. And I think that that really has to take a kind of very central place but what I encourage people to do is give it its central place in the context of a decision. So I think there's a really big distinction between using your intuition and preferences as part of a decision process and an approach that's just like do whatever you feel. 
Like, yeah. you know, I think do whatever you feel like is a way to lack confidence almost because then you're it's easy to second guess because you didn't think about it in the first place. I think thinking about something in the first place in the context of data and in the context of your preferences is a way towards, I hope, more confident parenting. Yeah. Well, what about finding good data, though? I mean, if you're going to use Google as your source of data, you could Google like, should I breastfeed my baby? And you're going to get, depending on what the algorithm is, how it's leaning, you're going to get some really different answers. So how can we use data, access data to help make some of the harder decisions around parenting? This is a huge piece of what I do in my book and in my newsletters is try to help people have both see, understand the data. And like, to be frank, like, I had spent an enormous number of years in school and then out of school trying to understand what makes data good and how we can learn from different types of data. And so in a sense, it's hard to be like, and here are my two key tips, you know, so although I could point to some things like randomized trials are good and, you know, correlation is not causality and larger sample sizes are better. Some of this is, you know, something that you learn over time working with with these data. And so I think one thing, if you're looking for like, what's one piece of advice on this, I often tell people like, look for a trusted source. You know, one of the problems with Google is you you end up in places that are really maybe not trusted sources, that there's not clear where they're getting their information and doing a little bit of vetting of who you are looking to for information can be a really good first step. And I know sometimes, and this is what we would find in our company sometimes, that we would get so into the data that we would just get paralyzed, like analysis paralysis, we would call it. And it was like, again, that juxtaposition between intuition and science. Is there a framework that you have that that we can use as we're trying to make some of these decisions, as we're trying to find good sources to get the data and to balance that with context of where we are in our families and our personal situations? Yeah. So in the, in the family firm, I have a framework, which I call the four F's because when you have a framework, you have to have like, everything's got to start with the same letter. That's how, that's how you do it. And, you know, so to put it sort of pretty succinctly. So the first thing is to frame the question. So a lot of times it's hard to make choices because we have not articulated two obvious alternatives. We're saying, you know, should I do this or not without saying what's in the or not space? They tell people like, say what the two concrete choices are. And then move on to collect the information that you need. And sometimes that's data and sometimes it's, you know, logistics. Sometimes it's actually like a calendar. If you're trying to think about something logistically complicated for your family, it's like sitting down with a calendar and thinking about what would this take for us to do this activity or, you know, engage in this extracurricular, whatever it is, but get kind of all of the data that you need together in one place and try to do that before you make a decision. So rather than what I, sometimes I think what happens with the analysis paralysis is that people get a little bit of data, then make a decision, then get a little bit more, then make another decision. And you sort of find yourself in this rabbit hole where you never kind of come to an end. So by separating out the information gathering from a second step, which is to make the decision, that can dial some of that back. And then to to tell people like have a distinct point at which you're going to make the decision, decide, okay, we're going to sit down and, you know, we're going to come out of this family meeting with a decision. And, you know, if that takes an hour, I guess we're going to take an hour. Hopefully it won't take an hour, but to really like articulate an endpoint and then try to not revisit the decision immediately, try to implement and move forward. And then I often talk to people about a fourth F, which is follow-up. And a lot of our choices, we do have the opportunity to revisit them. And so rather than saying every choice is forever, 
schedule a time to say, you know, we're going to do this activity, but then, you know, at the end of the semester, we're going to revisit like what that was that a good idea? Is that something we would want to do again? Because it can help you move away from just the kind of hysteresis of doing the same things just because you did them before, even if you don't like them. Yeah, I think we all just want to feel confident in what we're doing in our job as a parent. And I heard you say something once, the way to be happy with your decision is not to know that you made the right choice, but to know that you had a good process. So that framework is such, that's that's the way to follow it. Have a process. It's okay if it didn't end up being the perfect outcome that you wanted. P.S. Parenting never gives you perfect outcomes. Never gives you perfect outcomes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and I think when we, when we emphasize the, the need to get every decision right, we have set ourselves up for failure. Yeah. Because you're not going to get everything right. You're going to, you're going to mess up. Even things you think about carefully, sometimes you will make the wrong choice. And that's just part of like living a life where there is uncertainty about what the right thing is to do. And recognizing that can sometimes be a little freeing because we're so afraid to get it wrong. Just being like, sometimes you will get it wrong. And like, you can go back and change it then. Yeah. And that what's right for you might not be right for your best friend's family or your sister's family. Like there's no one right answer. And I think there's a lot of, oh, there's a lot of relief in that. Yes. That idea reminded me of a chat that I had with another guest on the podcast, the lazy genius, Kendra Adachi. Um, she was talking about deciding what's right for you. And she said this, so there is this really beautiful middle of just paying attention to what you need based on what matters to you, not to your mother-in-law, not to your sister, not to your neighbor, not to the PTA president or whatever it is. Like just name what matters to you and make choices to support that. That is truth. <laughs> Preach. It is totally right. I mean, one of the things I talk about in, in one of my books is the idea of like trying to articulate your family mission statement or your like key family values as a way to actually write down some of this idea of like what matters to you. Because I think that if we are able to kind of come together with our families and say like, this is what matters to me, that can actually be such a good touchstone to come back to when somebody's like, you know, why didn't you do this? Or why aren't you doing it like I did? To be like, well, actually what matters to me is blah. And yeah. so that's why we didn't do that. Or that's yeah. why we did it this way. That's so great. Just have like a touchstone or North Star to help guide those decisions. Okay. Well, the three books, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, Family Firm. I'm guessing that each of those, you when you wrote those, it was kind of a reflection of where you were in your own personal life. And I'm wondering if you can share with us, what is like one of the most surprising pieces of data that you uncovered while you were writing your books? And was there anything that you learned that changed the way you were doing things? I will tell you the the answer to the second thing first. I mean, come back to the first thing. So, so in the second thing, when I was writing Crib Sheet, I had, um, which is about sort of little kid parenting. I had at the time, my son was sort of like one and a half and my daughter was like six or something, four, four and a half, five and a half, something like that. And I had told my editor, I don't want to have a chapter on discipline because I don't think there's any good data on that. And like, I don't only want to write about things where I can say something about the data and I'm not going to do that. And she said, you know, look, I really think like, I really think this is this is important. And, you know, can you like, please do this? You have to have a chapter on this. And sometimes your editor is like, you have to have a chapter. You're like, All right, I'm going to have a chapter. Fine. And so I I ended up sort of diving into this question of like evidence based discipline. And it you know, turns out there's actually a set of kind of discipline practices or like evidence-based discipline practices, things, there's many versions of this. So some, one example is one, two, three magic. Another example is, you know, positive parenting. And they all kind of share this idea of sort of being consistent. And, you know, if you are going to have some system of, you know, timeouts or consequences, being consistent with them, 
if you're not going to, being consistent with whatever it is that you're sort of doing to kind of try to modify behavior. And that for me was quite illuminating because my first child is like extremely well behaved, like very both my children are lovely, but my first child is like extremely calm. And like, we never had to do any discipline because if you were just like, don't do that, she would feel like incredible shame, which is also not great, but it's a different personality. But my son was more of like, you told them not to touch the stove. And he just like went and did it again to see what would, what would happen. And so when I was sort of doing this work for the book, it was actually one of the few times that I sort of came back to my husband. I was like, okay, I did this for the book. And like, now we need to implement it because actually there is really good evidence here and we're not doing it in the way that, that we should. So that was probably our biggest, like we changed something because of how, how the book went. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what was the most uh, surprising thing that you learned? So the most su- surprising thing, which wasn't personally relevant, but when I wrote the first book, one of the things I talk about there is bed rest. So bed rest is something that I had sort of assumed that was like, a really good idea. Like bed rest during pregnancy for preterm labor or for a bunch of different complications, very commonly prescribed. Um, and you sort of have this intuition, like that seems like a good idea because like if you were laying down, wouldn't things go better? But it actually turns out in the data, there's basically no complication for which bed rest is a good idea. And in fact, wow. it is mostly not a good idea because it causes muscle atrophy and has other negative consequences. So that's something where like it was happening a lot and it was just very clear. It's like not a good idea. Wow. And again, I'm sure every situation is different. Consult your doctor. Yes, of course. <laughs> but that I, is, we have a lot of medical uh, disclaimers in the book. And I think, of course, like, you know, things are different. But if you look at sort of randomized trials for a lot of the places where this was commonly prescribed, yeah. it was not showing up. So interesting. Wow. Well, you did such a great job of hitting all of the hot topics that come up over and over again in our mom force community <laughs> that we have questions that we need answers for. And I would love to get your take okay. on some of those questions here. Okay. One is sleep training. Now there's a whole section in your book about this, but Amy from our mom force Facebook group, this is her question. She says, what is the best way to sleep train a baby? He's five months old and nowhere near sleeping through the night. None of my kids were ever good at it. And I am tired and I want to start sleeping again. Okay, so with all of your research, uh, what advice do you have for Amy? The, I have a couple of pieces of advice. First, so first, develop a plan before you implement. So a lot of times, particularly when we're very tired, our instincts are just like, oh, fine, I'm just, today you're gonna cry, and like that's I can't take it anymore. Rather than that, like develop sort of a concrete plan for how you're gonna consistently follow through on whatever is your sleep training plan. There's like sort of two that are very popular. There's kind of the Weissbluth, which is more or less like close the door and don't come back. And then there's the Ferber version where you go in and check frequently. In the data, both of those work about as well as each other. Sometimes people find the close the door a bit to be a bit easier to to follow through on. But there is no like exact right way to do this. The most important thing is to have a consistent plan that you can follow through on. For a baby in this age group, like around five months, uh, sleep training may be helpful at getting them to fall asleep at the beginning of the night. It may still be the case that they need to eat something in the middle of the night. So this is like a good thing to discuss with your doctor. Like what is a reasonable amount of sleep to expect at different ages before you make your concrete plan? Yeah. But I love that you're saying make a plan. It reminds me of what you just said about have a process to run to make your decision. There's confidence in having a plan and not just like winging it. Yeah. And then right. knowing like, okay, I wrote down this plan. Like I'm going to implement the, the just like yeah. something about having things in writing that I think makes it somewhat easier. Not that it's easy, but somewhat easier for people to kind of move forward on them. Yeah. And be accountable too. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Breastfeeding. 
Another hot topic. There's a whole section in your book, actually. I love how you you title it. Breast is best. Breast is better. Breast is about the same. (laughs) Okay. And I will admit, I've had a love-hate relationship with breastfeeding. I I was able, gratefully, to be able to breastfeed all my kids, but had very different, wildly varying experiences with each child. I have vivid memories of putting cold cabbage leaves in my bra, like anything to try to make it easier or be more successful. Cami from our Mom First community, she has a question. She says, will lactation supplements actually increase my milk supply? And I'm wondering if you have any data on that. We don't have very much data on this at all. So okay. if you, it is, it is one of the areas that I find most deeply frustrating because it is actually does not seem like a hard question to answer. So the question of like, if I eat these lactation cookies or this lactation oatmeal, or I take this fenugreek, fenugreek tea, yes, I drink tea, a lot of that. Like, will that impact my milk supply? We don't know. There's maybe very little evidence that it would and very little evidence that it wouldn't. It just isn't something that has been very well studied, which is a frustrating. Yes. Feature. Yes. The one thing we know is like, if you sort of ask like, is there any evidence-based way to increase milk supply? The main thing is like supply and demand. So if you if you demand more by having your baby feed more or by pumping more, then your supply will respond. But all of these other things, we just have no evidence. Well, it sounds like we need to put together a it study. We need someone who cares like to invest some time and resources in this. Okay. Well, I'm glad you brought up discipline earlier because yes, that is that is a hot topic. And you know, <laughs> You bless you for having a nice, calm child. Only but one. I, have only one nice, calm child. <laughs> well, I had an experience with my second. She just like had to test all the boundaries. And you talk about being a data scientist. Like, I feel like kids are little data scientists. Like they're analyzing the data. And I remember one time she wanted to come downstairs after bedtime. And I kept saying, no, go back upstairs, go back upstairs. But she finally wore us down. And we finally said, okay, you can come sit here and watch the show. Well, guess what? She came down every single night after that. Like she did the data. She tested us. She got her data. She's like, okay, I know I'm always going to get my way. So yeah, we have a lot to learn. We can learn from our kids too on how to, but we had a question from Sabrina. This one came on my Instagram. She said, how can I stop a hitting phase? Being stern doesn't work. Yet when I redirect, it feels like I'm not teaching her. So what did you learn in the data about discipline that would help Sabrina? Yeah. So first I, I want to say, like, I think when your kid is, is hitting, it can actually feel, I think people often feel a lot of guilt. Like, is my kid a bad kid in some way? And so I think the first thing I would say is like, this is a super normal developmental stage and doesn't indicate anything about your kid. So it's not that you don't want to have some discipline, but just like, let's make sure we're not layering like guilt, guilt about our and parenting. shame. That's important. Yes. When you turn to like what kinds of discipline, I think if we look into the specifics of some of these programs that kind of enforce this this discipline, you're thinking about things like counting and then a timeout. And even for a, you know, for a 18 month old timeouts hard, but for an older kid, even a sort of two or three year old, a short term timeout can be an effective method or that there's some consequence at the end of the counting. Um, So, you know, that is probably the thing with the most significant evidence base in terms of of discipline. I think the the piece I would say there is, again, like have a plan because whatever you're going to do, you want to do it every time. Because if you try something different every time, then that's like an interesting experiment for them, exactly as you say, to sort of see what will happen, see what will happen this time. Yeah. Consistency is key, whether they're five or 15. 
<laughs> learning that with my <laughs> seriously and having natural consequences i found that having natural consequences is important too but it still it can wear you down no matter how old they are but Completely. just be strong you've got this <laughs> let's talk about schooling because that is that's another hot topic and there again there's no one size solution to fit all in fact even amongst my seven kids we've done everything from private school charter school homeschool you know every kid's different and depending on their personality and development. I actually got quite a few questions about schooling. Hillary said, public or private school? What are the pros and cons? Tara says, half day or full day? Which one's better? Sabrina, should we stay in the neighborhood school boundaries with our friends or go to a different school? But I was hoping that you could weigh in on this question from Jennifer. I know there's actually a section in your book on this. Um, She says, my son turns five in May and technically qualifies him to start kindergarten in August. However, my gut is telling me to not start him until the following year. Any advice on whether to delay starting kindergarten or not? So redshirting, which is what this is sometimes called, so redshirting your kindergarten like they're a like they're a college athlete, it has become increasingly common over time. So the share of kids who are going to kindergarten at five has gone down. The share of kids who are starting at six has gone up. This is a place where I don't think there's an obvious answer, and it is really dependent on what your kid is like. The potential downside of being the youngest kid in the class is that we do see that when kids are younger in a class, there is actually an increased likelihood of being diagnosed with ADHD or you know, whether they have learning sort of behavioral differences, but just how old they are. So to the extent that they are the youngest kid in the class, that may mean that their behavior is interpreted in a particular way relative to the older kids. And so that's a kind of clinical version. If we kind of step back a little bit to what does that mean more broadly? When I talk to people about this, they're often very focused on the question of whether their child is academically ready for kindergarten. And that's actually probably quite a bit less important than the question of whether they're behaviorally ready for kindergarten. And that in turn is going to depend on what the kindergarten is like. So if your kid is entering a kindergarten that's going to require a lot of sort of sitting down for much of the day and your kid is not going to do well with that. It may be a situation in which holding them back for a year is is a good idea until they're more developmentally ready to be in a kind of seated, quiet environment. If you're entering a school where the kindergarten is more of a play-based environment, where there's like less sitting and maybe less worksheets and so on, then it may be easier to to bring a kid in who's going to, you know, be more, more rambunctious. So a combination of, you know, what's your kid like and what is the kindergarten like is the key to that decision. Yeah. Well, when she says that her gut is telling her not to start him, like how much do you weigh that? I would weigh the gut. But I yeah. think what I would say is my guess is that that what you are, that this is a place where you say my gut is telling you that. And then if I said, well, what is it specifically? It probably is a feeling like my kid feels young, you know, developmentally yeah. for his, not not young developmentally for his age, but young developmentally relative to, you know, being able to sit quietly in a classroom. Yeah. So I think it's, I would absolutely listen to your gut. My guess in this case is that it is probably a good idea to hold them back, but I would just discipline a little bit. Like, what do you mean when your gut yeah. says this? Do, do a little, get some data to help support that feeling that you've got so you can go with <laughs> exactly. it with confidence. Well, there was a time when my oldest daughter, she, you know, she went to a couple of years of preschool and was reading chapter books before kindergarten. And my gut told me she should not go to kindergarten. She needs to skip kindergarten. <laughs> And I had this idea that I would test her out of kindergarten and have her go straight to first grade. And I knew that was a possibility from other moms that I talked to. And I requested that she get the test. And the people at the school were so ugly to me saying, no, this would this is going to ruin her life. This is not a good idea. This is irresponsible parenting. But my gut told me, 
she shouldn't be going to kindergarten. Like she should go to first grade. And so she took the test. She passed. They were so, I mean, eventually they had to put her right in first grade. And I felt really, really confident that I was doing the right thing. And she told me, you will regret this for the rest of your life. Can you believe a wow. school administrator telling me that? But that's, it's amazing to ha- like, to have the confidence to do it in the face of that. Like I hats off. Yeah. That is, a lot of people would turn around in that moment. I'm very good at trusting my gut and I never regretted the decision ever once. And I don't think my, my daughter ever did too. She just, it was great. So, but it, you have to have some confidence in yourself to be able to like really stick to your guns and what you think is right, especially when people can be so nasty and ugly to you. So great, great advice. All right. So many other tough topics and questions. Got to get our books. They're in there. Everything about sleep positions for your baby, potty training, screen time, technology, all that stuff. But I have a, another question that was submitted in our community that I'm wondering if there might be any data to answer this one. Okay. And this is actually a question that I get a lot. This is, and this is submitted anonymously. She says, how do you know for sure when you're done having kids? We have three beautiful babies and my husband wants a vasectomy, but I am not so sure. So is there any data that can help with this kind of question? There is not. So people (laughs) sometimes ask, is there an optimal number of kids? Is there an ideal birth spacing? Is it bad to have just one? Should I like the answer is like there is nothing in the data that says how many kids is like the right number to have. And so the answer is like it like how do you feel? And I think that sometimes that's like really, that's like really freeing for people because they say like, you know, we only have one and we really feel done, but like people are telling us like our kid's going to be a weirdo. And it's nice to hear like, actually, there's something that would say your kid's going to have any differences. Like if this is, you're both happy with this, like that's awesome. In this case, of course, it's hard because maybe you're disagreeing. And I think what's really hard about that choice, if you're disagreeing with your, with your partner about number of kids is like, there's no resolution there that can possibly make both people have what they want. You know, like there's no compromise, like a baby is either there or they're not there. There's no like half, half baby. And so I think it's just one of those really hard decisions where it's just about how you feel and about, you know, maybe you should like, is a dog a good substitute? (laughs) It's not a good substitute. You can always get rid of a dog though. If you decide it's too much and you've got, no, I, I'm so grateful for all seven of my babies. I will admit some of, some of mine were surprises. More than I want. Well, I don't want to get into it. We don't need to get into details, but I will say number seven was a huge surprise and he is rocking our world, but it's hard to imagine it any other way. So it's such a personal decision, but I think being on the, trying to get on the same page with your partner, that's the most important thing. And you can, you, you can collect your own data on like, well, what is our life like right now? And how, you know, what could it possibly look like? Do the pros and cons. But again, you just, you cannot predict like what that little spirit, that personality is going to be like when they come to your family. They yeah. can be. No, and it, it is really one of those times when like, you know, you could sit down with the data and you should probably think about, you know, how would this impact the things that we're doing and our other kids and whatever. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a huge piece of that, which I think like is just about, do you feel yeah. done? And I mean, I feel like when I had my first kid immediately, like we're definitely going to have another one. And more or less, as soon as my son was born, I was like, okay, we're good. This is enough. Really? Like our family is finished. And like we, I think neither of us have ever looked back. There was actually a time when we were like on the subway and I hadn't 
just like me and my husband after our second kid was born and I like hadn't, maybe I hadn't eaten breakfast. I had a lot of coffee and, and we were like moving a lot. I was like kind of nauseous. So like, oh, I'm feeling nauseous. And he was like, if there's a third one, I'm going. <laughs> I was like, no, there's not. I just have too much coffee. But it was like, all right, all right. Yeah. Well, I'm the oldest of 12 and I, I thought I wanted a big family, which would be six. That's what I thought I wanted, which is half what I had. But, but after I had my first, I thought, I don't know if I can have another one. Like, first of all, I don't know how I could possibly love another child Mm. enough, like as much as I love this child. And I just did not feel ready. But once I found out I was pregnant again, then I was like, all right, let's do this thing. So that feeling of feeling like, how could I love? I mean, that's such a, such such a, a defining moment of parent, parenthood, I think, was like you have have a kid and you realize like this is not a way that I have ever imagined feeling about any, not not only have I ever felt this way, but like you can't imagine having felt this way yeah. about something. And then the idea that like you could feel that way again about a second person is like sort of extraordinary. That, that when I saw my kids love each other, like when my oldest was loving on that baby, my heart was going to explode. And like, and that is the miracle of, motherhood is you just, your love just grows and grows and grows. And it's just, it's amazing. It is such a blessing. Unfortunately, the hours of the day do not grow as your family grows. No, they do not. <laughs> like that limited resource of like the 24 hours in a day and busy schedule. I love what I saw on your Instagram recently. You you posted a, a parenting hack that someone in your community had shared. And I want to read it real fast because it's so clever. It says, my best parenting hack is to collapse all of dinner to bed, all of the dinner to bed activity into the bathtub in order to contain the kids and minimize transition. Dessert is served in the tub, things like M&Ms and a lollipop instead of crumbly sweets, then bedtime story read while the kids are in the tub, then brush the teeth there, rinse and spit out in the water. (laughs) And then when you're done with the bath, you can put them right in their tomorrow clothes and call it a night. There was a lot of controversy about this story. Really? This is something my mother would invent. My mother is just the most creative out of the box. Like mother of 12, you have to be. I actually thought it was brilliant. What was the controversy on that incredible mom hack? So people had a few different pieces of controversy. I think there was some controversy about having dessert and then brushing your teeth in the bath. Some people did Spitting like out into the bathwater, maybe. Spitting out into the bathwater. <laughs> there was some feeling of like tomorrow clothes being uncomfortable to sleep in. But I think there was something, there were then many people who who sort of dis- seemed to think that they would pick up parts of this, right? So maybe you don't have your kids sleep in the clothes, but the idea of like, ah, maybe we give dessert in the bath. Like maybe we brush our teeth in the bath. It, it, just, it seems like a reasonable, a reasonable approach. Well, I polled my mom force community on some of their best mom hacks, and I wanted to share a couple of those there. One suggested um, it's kind of in the bath theme, but instead of giving my babies baths, I put them in the shower with me in their bumbo seat. So. The bumbo seat gets clean and the baby gets cleaned at the same time. I love that from Kimmy. B says mapping out dinners helps save time in their days. Busy nights call for easy meals. Hillary said her hack is utilizing the alarm on her phone to make sure that they have plenty of time to get to where they're going. And I especially love this hack from Allison. She says, don't be afraid to ask for and or hire more help, which that resonates with me so much because I think so often as mothers, we like take on this like martyrdom, like we've got to sacrifice everything for our motherhood. And that is not, that is not healthy. That is not a good solution. And I think there's data to show that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, people, the the kind of role of depression or overwork in then, you know, impacting, you know, your life and how your kids are functioning, that's all pretty clear. I have a friend who's, who wrote, I was looking at her book this morning and she said something like, 
you know, in the space of like, basically you can't be the best for your family if you are not putting any of your needs first. And I think that's like such a big piece of this is just recognizing that, you know, doing something for yourself some of the time is actually not just selfish. It is also like how you invest in, you know, being a complete and happy person who is happy with your family. And if that means mom hacking your way to dessert in the bathtub or putting your kids in their tomorrow clothes before they go to bed, do what you got to do, mama. It's so good. Okay. My mom hack is to get all of Emily's books. Seriously, whatever stage you are in, expecting better for pregnancy, crib sheet for from birth to preschool or the family firm, which is just such a clever way of using the analogy of running a business to like running your family. There's so much good stuff there. Is there another book on the horizon for these teenage years? I mean, you're almost there. Maybe you got to live a little I'm bit longer. Don't say that. <laughs> My daughter told me that there, I, I can't like write a book about teenagers until she is a teenager for a little while. So I think we're like a few years, we're a few years off. But I also, I mean, I feel like we'll see. Teenagers seem really like a lot of challenging work. And they're so fun. They are very, very fun, but it's a whole different game. So just as long as you commit to me that you will write that book. And then also for the young adult, you just got to keep, keep us, keep us going here. And I also love how you've updated the books. I noticed in my edition of Expecting, you know, because data changes, we learn more, more research happens. And so um, I love that you're updating that as you get more information. Okay. So where can people find you other than the books? Where can they learn about? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at Prof Emily Oster, and you can find my newsletter at Substack. It's Parent Data at, at Substack. And you have a podcast where I read the newsletter when oh. we do interviews for the newsletter. <laughs> so if you don't want to read and you just want someone to, if you want Emily to read it to you while you're getting we ready in the morning, great, uh, so the podcast has some great interviews with people, some of which we also feature in the newsletter. So okay. lots of different ways to find the data. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you again for helping take some of the fear out of parenting because a lot of that fear is rooted in uncertainty. You've helped by teaching us a framework that will help us make good decisions. But also thank you for the reminder that there is, there's no one right answer. We're never going to have the control that we seek. That's okay. There's adventure in the unexpected. All we can do is our best. You're doing incredible work. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I just love her. So, so good. Hey, before we go, I want to leave you with one more piece of advice. Actually, this is more of a photo tip. You've probably heard me talk about capturing everyday magical moments. Well, here's an idea of an everyday photo that you can take this week. Next time your kids are making a funny face, yeah, you know the one, <laughs> snap a photo. I know I, we usually make our kids pose and smile in photos, but some of my favorite pictures are of my kids when they are pulling crazy faces. There's sure to be some of your favorites too. For more fun photo tips, check out my free photo organization course. It's linked in the show notes along with the sweet chapbooks discount code. And don't forget to join me over at Vanessa Quigley on Instagram and on our MomForce Facebook group to keep chatting about all things mom life. Until next time. 